So Titus chapter 2, verse 1 begins. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of God. Praise be God. Amen. Amen. So, this morning I want to ask you a couple of questions. These are sort of rhetorical because I think I know the answer. Because <laughs> I know that the answer to me. But I'm going to ask you this. How many of you have mastered yourself? We're going to see in our text this morning that godly lives in the present age, whether you're young, old, a man or a woman, a girl or a boy, slave or free, it is this pursuit of self-control, the mastery of self. I pose that this comes by submission to our master, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by his grace and by his mercy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, when we are called to follow Christ, we are summoned to an exclusive attachment to his person. And the grace of his call bursts the bonds of legalism. It is a gracious call, a gracious commandment. It transcends the difference between the law and the gospel. Christ calls, the disciple follows. That is, grace and commandment in one. Psalm 119.45 says, And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. This morning, we're going to see in this text that right doctrine must be lived. The gospel does not merely suggest that we live according to it. The gospel demands it. If you remember from our time last week in, in chapter 1, beginning verse 12, Paul says, one of, the, uh, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to do the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. 
They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Well, we might know that the Cretans' natural affections led them to live as Cretans who happened to be Christian and not as Christians who happened to live in Crete. And I think about us, and I think, are we Americans that happen to be Christian, or are we Christians who happen to live in America? In Romans 7, Paul writes in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So living in accord with the doctrine of God must be taught. And it can only be carried out in the same way that we first received it. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and under the, the authority of Scripture alone. So Titus, he's left in Crete for two purposes, as I pointed out last week. And point one was to appoint elders in every town, and two was to put what remained into order. So, living in accord with the doctrine of God, it has to be taught, right? Well, he in leaves Titus in Crete for these two purposes. One, to appoint elders in every town, as I said, and then secondly, is to put what remained into order. As we notice from verse 1, it says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Okay, so there's an assumption there that sound doctrine had already been taught. Okay? He's not telling them to teach something, to teach these basic truths, right? He says, I want you to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So, what remained needful was that the Cretan people be taught how to flesh out in practical living what the doctrine of God commands. He's saying, you understand the doctrine of God. And as we ended chapter 1, you know, he talks at the end there. He says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Because the doctrine of God must line up with godly living. must be living it out. So <clears throat> Paul writes in Ephesians 4, and this is where I'm going to take it for a minute, to just reiterate the same point that he's uh, making here in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse uh, 17. Now I say this, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created, created after the likeness of God, and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. There's this thought sometimes in my life that, and I, and I think as an as a early Christian I thought this too, was that there was, there was the law of God, and then there was, there was this Christ who came and, and saved me, and there I am. And that now the law of God is completely null and void, that it's gone, that there's no reason to do anything Christ did at all, right? Which in one sense is true that Christ did do it all, that Christ paid it all. And so as if I thought that all of a sudden the standard of God had changed, right? My thinking was that, okay, here's the standard of God, and it's perfect and right and holy. And I recognize that I am not perfect and right and holy, and I have a need for a Savior. And so my life is surrendered to Christ. And in my thinking and in my living, it was, okay, well... Now the God has changed somehow. There is no holy requirement. Well, that is just not true at all. God is still holy. His commandments are still to be adhered to. The only thing that, that the thing that Christ did for us is enable us to live it, right? But we still must live it. That's the deal. We still must live it. So as we're looking at um, Titus here, we see that there are few doctrinal commands made to the Cretan churches in this book. But what remained was that Cretan living was out of order with the doctrine of God. So that's what he tells them, to put these, what's remained, back into order, right? So these lives were not ordered by the doctrine of God, right? So they needed to line those things up. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's what he's working on lining up. He says, Titus, here are the circumstances going on in Crete. And you don't want to go into the kind of people they are. But, but here's the kind of people, these are the circumstances. But as for you, here's what you are to teach. You are to teach that which accords with sound doctrine. That is, teach them to behave in a way that accords with sound doctrine. That is, that which fits with, matches, or is in harmony with the trustworthy word of God. You are to teach this to older men, in verse 2, older women, verse 3, younger women, verses 4 through 5, younger men, verses 6 through 8, bondservants, verses 9 through 10. He tells Titus that the why, that the why you do this is because of a who. It's because who Christ was, because of who Christ is, and because of who Christ will be for us as we live godly lives. He tells us that in verses 11 through 14. And then in verse 15, he says, Titus, this is how you are to teach it. So verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. To older men, he says older men are to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded is to be circumspect, guarded, wary. They are to be men who guard their minds from the ungodly in their thinking and in what they allow to influence them. 
He tells them, not only to, are you to be sober-minded, but you're to be dignified. That is, that your conduct is that which brings honor to yourself and to others. Evil cannot rightly be attributed to you. Then, further, he says, not only are you to be sober-minded, dignified, but you're to be self-controlled. Older men are to be those who are not prone to excesses in any area of their lives. They are to master themselves and sin. It reminds me back of Genesis 4, 7. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. See, this idea of being self-controlled, right? They are to work at that which they are called to. It's not to be shirked. It's not to be avoided. They're to be disciplined and moderate in every area of their life. Further, to be sober-minded, to be dignified, to be self-controlled, he then says you need to be sound in the faith. They are marked by what they trust in. To be sound in the faith is to be marked by what you trust in. They trusted, trust not in riches, trust not in position, trust not in talents, but be marked out by trust in God. Then he tells them that all of that is to be done in love. The godly man is giving in his time, his resources, and his skills for the benefit of others out of a love for God and a love for his people. And then he tells them this, to do this in steadfastness. That is, this love, it doesn't waver by your circumstances. His life is marked by an, endure, an enduring pursuit of personal godliness, an enduring pursuit of godliness in himself, and a pursuit of godliness in those that God has entrusted him to care for. Now, we move to older women. Now, when I was thinking about this older man, older woman thing, I was trying to decide if I fit in the <laughs> older man thing. Because, like, yeah, my brother-in-law's life is head yes. But, you know, I feel like I'm 25, and I act a little immature sometimes. So, when I'm thinking about being 50, I'm like, okay, well, am I in that older man category? I guess I am now. <laughs> I guess I am now in this older man category. Yeah. So anyway, so there's a lot expected of me as an older man now, right? So I need to grow up, I guess. Right, honey? Yeah. She says, yeah, you need to grow up. So now we move to the call for older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Older women are to behave in a way that is becoming of holiness. In other words, their behavior signifies that their lives are set apart. They're set apart toward that which accords with godliness. So it's the same for male and female, right? That our lives are to be set aside and, and to look that in that in that life that we live, that our life is according to the trustworthy word of God, that we're living according to that. So, not only for these women does he say that, that uh, they're to be reverent in behavior, but they're to not be slanderers. That is, that an older woman's speech 
is that which edifies and builds up. It doesn't gossip, tear down, or vilify others. Next, he says that they are not to be slaves to wine, to much wine. Older women are not to be subservient to wine or to any other habit or attitude. It's not really necessarily just about wine up there. Don't be subservient to any substance or any attitude or any habit. You know why? Because then you're free. You're free to love others and invest in the work that God has called you to. You're a slave to something else, right? You're not free to love and serve as God has called you to. And what has he called these older women to? He's called them to this, to teach what is good. Teach what is good. Well, it sounds as though to me that they are called to teach sound doctrine. Teach what is good. They're called to teach sound doctrine. So live a life that accords with godliness, and this godliness will lead you to teach that which is sound. Life and word lining up. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Two things I want to note about that. It seems then that in order that older women teach sound doctrine, they must be first grounded in sound doctrine personally. That is, that just like Paul's admonition to the elders, he would say this to these older women, you must trust firmly to the trustworthy word of God as it was taught to you. Right? That you may be able then to rebuke those who contradict it. And secondly, the instruction is that the older women be teachers of younger women. And notice who it is not. It is not Titus who teaches the younger women. It's not Paul who teaches the younger women. It's not the elders who teach the younger women. It's not me. It's not our elders who teach the younger women. And you, I don't even have to tell you why that's a good reason. Right? There's good reason for that, that it's set up this way. Older women training younger women. And so what is it that they are to teach and what is the purpose in it? It is to train younger women to do this, to love their husbands and their children. Well, in the original wording of this, it says to love their husbands and to love their children. And there's a distinction in the kind of love. There's a love for your husband, and there's a love for your children. And the love for the husband that is described here is a friendly kind of love. That's to be their friend. And I love that there's this subtle difference, because as we're raising kids, we have to remember this, that our love for them, they're not our friend. <laughs> we can't love them like we love a friend, right? We have to love them with parental guidance and understanding, that kind of thing, right? So they do distinct this, but it says it in just this one sentence, love your husbands and your children, and at first look, it seems like, well, love them with the same kind of love, but it's not. It is, it is distinct. There are two kinds of love here. He's talking about. But having affectionate love as a friend to your husband and familial love for your children. And notice next, says to be self-controlled. Again, be self-controlled. To be those who are not prone to excesses in any area of their lives. They are to master themselves 
and their sin. The work that they are called to is not to be shirked, but to be avoided. They are to be disciplined and moderate in all areas of their lives. Next, tells younger women to be pure. That is, to be believing. To be pure is to be believing. To have your minds and your consciences, as well as your actions, undefiled, unspotted from the stain of the world. Then, next, he tells the older women to teach these younger women to to, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. That is, to be engaged in meaningful work. Be engaged in meaningful work, not in idleness. Minding her own affairs. Right? So he's teaching to do what it is that God has called you to in the place that God has called you. Then to be kind and submissive to their own husbands. That is, out of an affectionate love for her husband and a respect for God's unique calling and responsibility in his life. Be submissive to your own husband. Your husband has a unique call, right? That's what he would have him teach. Your husband has a unique call and a unique responsibility. And out of a friendly sort of love and affection for your husband, submit to him. And then he gives us the why. At the end of each section, right? At the end of each section that we're going to see, at the end of each section is he's talking to specific people in specific groups, that he gives them the why. And this first why is that the word of God would not be reviled. Their lives line up with the doctrine of God. What does the world do when it looks at us? And we tell the truth about the doctrine of God. And they look at our lives and they say, it doesn't matter to them. So what? Why does it matter to me? If they live like hell, Monday through Saturday, and go to church on Sunday, then why should I even give ear to what it is that they're telling me that the doctrine of God says? So that's the idea here, is that he says, you know, the word of God, that it would not be revival. Now, let's look at verses 6 through 8. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Notice it only says that to the younger men, just one thing. <laughs> just one thing. Urge them to be self-controlled. That's got to be the topic. I've got, I've got a 15-year-old. Urge that boy to be self-controlled, right? Teach him how to do that. And you'll win kind of in a lot of other areas. If you can get that one down, you'll, you'll learn a lot of other things, right? So urge younger men to be self-controlled, to be those who are not prone to excesses in any area of their lives to master themselves and their sin. And the work that they are called to is not to be shirked or avoided. So next, he focuses in a little bit on himself and his teaching, right? So likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. So by example, Live your life by example in front of these younger men that they might know how to live. That they might know how to live a godly life. Show this in, in this action, right? Says, so then in your teaching, he says, show integrity, dignity, 
and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And he gives them the why. And here's another why. So that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So we don't want the word of God to be reviled. That's the first why. And the next why is that our conduct and our speech says a lot about who we are as a group, right? So he's saying, this, here's, here's why I live a godly life in this present age. Because our witness of what the Word of God says, we don't want it to be reviled. And then, the witness of who we are as a body, right? We want, we want that to have integrity, those things that people would see. that, And, and it puts them to shame, right? It puts those to shame. Uh, that might say anything evil of us because our lives are consistent with what the Word of God says. Next, he turns to bond servants. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. In everything. They're to be submissive to their own masters. Submit to those in position over you, he would say, even in the unpleasant things. For us, we can equate this to our workplaces. Can we submit to the people we work for, our bosses, even when their requests seem unreasonable? Can we do that? Can we do that which is pleasing to them all the time? It says they are to be well-pleasing. Can we submit to those over us with an aim to bless the master? With an, with an aim to for the companies and the places that we work for, that can we help them attain their agenda while putting our agenda on hold a bit? Not being argumentative toward our bosses. Not pilfering. And the idea of not pilfering is defined as stealing. And usually things of little value. Right? That's the idea of pilfering, is stealing something of little value. And I thought about this, about the workplaces. So, do we clock in on time each day? Do we take 12 minutes on a 10-minute break? And then I thought about this one, because this used to happen when I worked at Fred Meyer a lot. He'd go home, and if you went into the drawer of, of my desk, I had probably 380 pens that said Fred Meyer on them, right? But... But how many of those company pins do we have? Do we think that that's negligible to be taking that? It's of little value, right? But does it belong to me? And then the big one is, do we spend our time producing? Do we produce at work? Or are we engaged in socializing when we ought to be working? Is that not pilfering? Is it not slightly stealing something that seems like of little value? He says to show all good faith. Why? In everything, adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. In living such a godly life, we take what is beautiful for us, as we talked about last week, what is beautiful, the beauty of God and the Savior, Jesus Christ, and our lives have had adornment to that. It magnifies the beauty of Christ. Right? If we live like our own selves, living ungodly lives, right? we put a stain on the beauty of Christ. But if we live a life according 
to godliness, that which accords with sound doctrine. If we live that kind of life, we adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So next, when we look in these next sessions, we're going to see why and how and when and who. What is this godliness about and when is it supposed to be and why and how can I do it? Because didn't I just say in the beginning that, that in Romans 7, Paul says that I find in myself I don't have the ability to carry it out, right? I realize that I must do these things. I must live about my life. I don't have anything to carry it out, right? But it still should be our pursuit. And God even says, like I said in Genesis, right? Sin is there, crouching at the door. Its, its desire is for you, but you should have dominion over it, right? He tells us that that ought to be our aim, is have dominion over that. So why and how and when and who? Verse 11. Here we go. Why? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is, that all of us in this room who are in Christ, right? Christ appeared to us. He appeared to us when we were sinful, hateful people toward God. He appeared to us. His gracious act of love for us made us something that we could not be ourselves. It's who Christ was for us. And now we say why? Who is who Christ was and what his purpose was and what his purpose is? His purpose was that the grace of God appeared to us and it bring us salvation. How? Verse 12. Training us. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So there's 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 a there's a negative, right? Train us to renounce, something to remove. And then something added to us, right? So here we see in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then it's also training us to renounce something, but training us to do something. Training us to live. Training us to live self-controlled to be those who are not prone to excesses in any area of our lives, to be those who master themselves and master their sin, to be those who work as they are called, that they don't shirk or avoid that which God has called them to, that we be made upright. That's what Christ was for us and is for us, that we might live godly lives, self-controlled, to be those who are not prone to excesses in any area of our lives, to be self-controlled, to master ourselves, right? So he tells us this, but when? When? And what is this godly life? Behavior that accords with sound doctrine, that which is, that fits with, matches, or is in harmony with the trustworthy word of God. When? Verse 13, in the present age, today. When is the time to start living a godly life? He tells us right here. When is it? Now. Right? Right now. I remember thinking as a young Christian, I'll get my act together 
down the road, right? I have enough of this love of Christ. I like, I like, I like Jesus and who He is. I like the love that He has for me. I like that. I also like my little pet sins too. Right? I like to hang on to those. So I think, you know, that I've got enough time that one day I'll start living for Him. I remember my friend Joe told me a story about conversations he had with his dad and about some struggles he was having. And, and Joe's dad tells him, he says, son, did you ever think about living for him? Did you ever think about living for God? Instead of expecting God to do something for you, to give you something? I don't understand why I'm in this position. I need God to do something for me. And his dad says to him, Joe, do you ever think about just living for him? Might be a good idea, right? To do it now, he says, in this present age. Now is the time to live for God. So we do this in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. And what is our hope? What is our hope in this present age? I think that in this text it answers that the what, the when, and the how are all answered in the who of the gospel that saved us and the gospel that empowers us to live godly lives in the present age. We wait in hope for the coming of Christ today. But we are today empowered and guaranteed in the present age by the indwelling Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. How do we live godly lives in this present age? We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit that God gave us. That this Christ who was our salvation, this Christ who came and this grace of God that appeared to us at that point of salvation, he did not leave us alone. He did not leave us as orphans. Because when we think about living these godly lives and all of these attributes and living them out day by day and moment by moment, I think you might get the shrinking feeling in yourself that I get in myself is, oh my goodness, I am undone. I am a complete and utter wreck. How am I going to do this? Well, you're only going to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit that God has given for us. And this is what we can have confidence in. We can be confident of who God is for us in the present because of who he was for us in the past. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he gave himself for us that we would then be dead to sin and alive to God. Let's look at verse 14. What did he do? What did he do? We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, of, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what did he do? Gave himself. Number one, he gave himself. But why did he do it? Why did he give himself? To redeem us from all lawlessness. Remember, as Randy was teaching about redemption, right? To redeem us from all lawlessness. That is, it was a situation that was impossible for us to achieve. He gave himself for the purpose of redeeming us, doing for us what we could not do. 
doing for us that was absolutely impossible. He redeemed us from a situation that was impossible for ourselves. And then further, why did he do it? Well, to redeem us, yes, but to purify for himself a people. To purify for himself a people. And this task is a task that must come by grace through faith in Christ. And what kind of people, what kind of people are we to be? Those that he has redeemed, those that he is purifying, what kind of people are we going to be? Well, he tells us here, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. You see, all of this is about preparation, this life that we live in, isn't it? We're being prepared. We're being prepared. In this book, in this letter to Titus, I think there must be nine references to work. Work. He's, we're being prepared for the work of God, right? Again and again. And he says here, a people, I'm making a people who are zealous for good works. We're training to be ready, to be prepared for the good works that God has already prepared beforehand. God has prepared the works. And what is it that we're doing in this life? Being a people prepared to do them, right? Being a, a people whose lives line up with the very doctrine of God so that we are prepared to do the work that God has called us to do. And this work that God would have us do is to be done by his people, to be done by those who have received their training in godliness. The work that has been prepared is to be done in zeal and enthusiasm. It's also done in toil and in hardship. Why? Because God's people have found that the greatest treasure ever known in the whole world is the mercy and grace of God that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Prepared for these good works because of Christ's greater work for us. And then, lastly, he's going to tell them, this is how you are to teach it. Declare these things. So a declaration. I declare this truth. Is it received by you this morning? Is it received? If it isn't, he would tell me further yet, exhort them. That is, encourage them. Encourage them. Move them along. I declare it. You don't receive it. I'm going to encourage you. Then yet, if you don't receive that word, he says, rebuke them. Rebuke them. Stronger. I'm not going to just suggest that we follow after God and that we live godly lives in this present age. I'm not I'm going to suggest it, right? Then I'm going to encourage you to do it. Then if you don't do it, rebuke with all authority. Because it's not me, it's not Titus who declares this. It is that the Word of God declares this is how you're to live. It is the holiness of God that demands that God's people live according to sound doctrine. It is God's command. And he says, so you do this with all authority. All authority. Because there is nothing more authoritative than the very word of God. That's what we have. We have the authority of God written down for us. And then he says, let no one disregard you. 
No one disregard you. That's a bold thing. You know, especially as a pastor who stands up and I, I like peace and I, I like to try to get along with people and I maybe would shrink back. Right? And say, well, this might upset people. They might not like me. Right? They might not like me if I call them out on this and say, hey, brother, this is an area you need some work in. Right? They might, they might say, well, that's true. I don't like that guy, so I'll tell you what, I'm going to stay away from him because <laughs> he's going to tell me this stuff. Right? But I think it goes back to what he says about the character of the persons that are living godly lives because he, he starts out and, say, and he, he ends with all of this character, uh, these characters I'm asking you to live out. He says, do them in love. Right? Be a person who cares so deeply about another person's walk with the Lord, right? That you do this in love. The God is in love. You still might be rejected, though. You still might be rejected if you do this in love. But he says, do this with all authority. Because the authority it is from the Word of God. And so, let us pray now that the Lord would help us to do this this week, this month, this year, today. To live a life of godliness, a life that accords with the will of God. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for what he has done in us, through us, and for us, that you, God, had Christ appear to us and gave us such great grace in saving us. And it is by this grace that we ask, Lord, that currently, that if we are in a state where we are those who are pilfering, those who are living ungodly lives, Lord, that you would convict us of our sin, knowing that all you want for us, all you want for us is to be empowered, that you want to strengthen us to live a life that glorifies your name, that is consistent with your word. And Lord, we admit that we are weak and powerless in this, and we need the strength of the Holy Spirit to do so this morning. If for the first time there's somebody here who says, the grace of God has appeared to me, I understand that I am way outside of the holy standard of God. That I put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ's name, what he's done for me. That he lived the life I couldn't live. He died a death I dare not die. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again. He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within me, to live out this life that is pleasing to God. Lord, if that's there's one here, help them, Lord, to convince them to confess that to you and to receive that great grace in your Son, Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you be with us, that you go before us this week and empower us in Jesus' name. Amen.